We're continuing our, our series through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which has been a lot of fun. And, uh, and so we're going to be picking up uh, kind of where we left off in, in, in Matthew chapter 16, if you guys want to turn there. Um, I, I just kind of want to just give a little bit of a, uh, just a, a little bit of a context as we, as we step into these verses. Um, these are, uh, we're going to finish basically out this chapter and, uh, and it is three pivotal, important moments, uh, in a row where these are very familiar conversations that Jesus has with his disciples and uh, these are extremely important conversations and and what it does is it, it sets up and frames uh, three foundational aspects of our lives as believers and so these three pivotal moments uh, they, they basically set the foundation they set the course for what life's all about for all of us and uh, and so these are worth uh, taking some time I'm really excited about talking about these these are some of my favorite moments in the Bible. Uh, next week, we, we're, we're going to uh, focus on, we, 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 when we started this series, uh, knowing full well that December was coming and Christmas Eve was coming, we, uh, we kind of jumped over the arrival of Jesus, the, 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 the actual birth of Jesus. And so we're going to go back to that uh, next week. And, uh, and then we'll continue on chapter 17 on New Year's Eve. And so it'll be brilliant. So Matthew 16, I just want to let you guys know, I, I, I have a header uh, kind of a title for each one of these these three sections, and so um, this one would be knowing Jesus, uh, the importance of knowing Jesus. And so this is how it goes, starting verse thirteen. When Jesus came into the district of uh, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "Who do people say the Son of Man is?" And they said, uh, "Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, still others Jeremiah." Or one of the prophets. And he said to him, uh, Who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, which means son of Jonah, uh, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Um, Jesus asks two questions, rapid fire, back to back. Uh, first one is, who do people th- say that I am? What's the word on the street? What's the scuttlebutt? What's the, what, what's the news on TMZ? And, and, uh, and so they just are recounting what they've heard. And so some say that you're John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, these, all three of these people are no longer with us. They're passed away. So basically they're saying, uh, people are under the, uh, the, the idea that you are a re- reincarnated, resurrected prophet. Uh, you are one of these guys come back to life. And now we know Elijah had an unusual, uh, death. He never actually died. He was taken up in a chariot of fire, which was pretty impressive. That would be a, a cool way to go. Talking about drama. Uh, I don't think any halftime, Super Bowl halftime show could, could measure up to being taken up in a chariot of fire. Uh, that'd be pretty amazing. But uh, he's saying, uh, the disciples are saying, uh, people assume you're one of these people uh, who have come back. And so then he asks a, a, a second question, a follow-up. He says, but who do you say that I am? Now, this week, I, more than ever, I sat down and pondered, what, what's up with the two-question thing? 
Uh, why even ask the first one? And you've got to understand that Jesus is not asking questions of anybody that he doesn't already know the answer to. So to me, this, the, the, the purpose and the meaning, the reason behind asking this question is a lot like in the Garden of Eden after the fall where God says, where are you guys? Marco, he's not asking because he doesn't know. He's not asking because Adam and Eve are champion hide-and-go-seekers. Uh, they're really good at camouflage. Uh, they, they, he's asking for their benefit. Where are you? As to say, take a moment and understand, oh, wait, I'm trying to hide from God. How ridiculous is that? And why am I doing this? So Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I, that I am? He's asking them for their benefit, for our benefit. And, and he wants them to take the, the answer to that question. What is the popular opinion? And he wants them to, to compare it, contrast it, put it right up against what do you know and what's the revelation that you've received about who I am? So he wants, to, he wants them to compare these two things, the popular opinion with what you know to be true. Uh, I, something that we don't take into consideration nearly enough is how countercultural and counterintuitive Jesus is. We, we don't spend enough time thinking about it, talking about it. Um, we, can, we can feel safe in the popular opinion. We can feel safe in majority rule. We can feel safe going along with the crowd. But uh, that's not where we find Jesus. So he, he speaks of it in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a, there's a narrow way that is not crowded and then there's a, there's a wide path that is, uh, that is like Disney World. Lots and lots and lots of people. And so uh, this is the way that his ministry was so controversial because he talked about, okay, the last or first, the least or greatest. If you want to actually gain life, you lose it, which we'll talk about in a minute. He, he, he doesn't go the way of the crowd. Jesus? That was an amen from heaven. Because you're preaching well. Um, <laughs> drop the mic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, so uh, in, in our world, and, and I, I don't want to get too, um, I don't know, too, I don't want to turn it into a social commentary, but let's just take a moment. This, this culture is really fond of conformity. Our world loves conformity. As much as we'll shout from the rooftops, be yourself, we don't mean it. We don't mean it at all. We say, we say be yourself as long as yourself agrees with myself. Be yourself, but do it in a certain way that is uh, acceptable, socially acceptable by me. So to disagree, you, 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 get, you have to wear a scarlet letter. So here's Jesus saying, what's the popular opinion? What's everybody saying? And then he, he's almost putting them on the spot. But what do you say? And then he's, he's letting them sit in that. And, and suddenly they're having to deal with the fact that you're a weirdo. Because you think differently 
And because it's not what everybody thinks, you are weird. Now, uh, admittingly, I have become something that I never wanted to become. I promised I would not become, and that is a grumpy old man. I have become a grumpy old man. Uh, Basically, everything that's come out in the last decade, I hate, I despise, I hate it all. I don't like the music. I don't like the hairstyles. I don't like Harry Styles. I don't like anything. (laughs) I don't like anything at all. I don't like the fashion. I certainly, one of the things I, I hate the most is the slang. It's so dumb. To say sus or, or riz, stop it. Just stop it. Don't do that. No. Uh, and so I, I've learned, and I, and I promise I would stay, as growing up, I promise, I made myself the promise, I would stay current, I would stay connected, I would stay cool. I lost that before I hit 40. It was gone. I was already yelling at people on my lawn. You stupid kids and your crazy rock and roll music and your pickup trucks and your girlfriends. Get out of here. So um, I don't know what that means. But I, I, one of the things that I've really been hard on, like I said, has been the, the slang. Now, understanding completely, growing up, we all had slang. This is nothing new. It's just their slang is dumb and my slang was cool. So, uh, but there is a kernel, a seedling of good intention in my giving young people a hard time about uh, stuff like that. There's a, there's a seedling. Now, the majority of it, I'm grumpy, <laughs> I'm old, and I'm just, I'm just an old man. But the, the one thing I would say that is sort of underneath all that, and I could certainly do it in a nicer way uh, other than mockery, but you, I, I'm not a big fan of conformity. And I think a lot of, what we, a lot of speech, a lot of slang... It's a social contagion, and so it's just a mindless parroting of what happens. And so people don't even realize they do it. And if you stop and realize, you said the word literally, literally, 306 times in one sentence. And it, it, it's, it, that, didn't, that wasn't the thing. That didn't happen 10 years ago. It is a social contagion. To, uh, to exclaim when something goes good or you win something, let's go! And you see it in every sporting event ever. and You, you can see their mouths do that. It's just, it's not conscious. It's a social contagion. That didn't happen 10 years ago. It's caught. Now, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying that that thing is evil. It's not. It's silly and I'm fine with it. It's okay. The world keeps spinning. I'm fine. Jesus loves me. But I wish someone told me, I wish more people told me as a young man, buddy, you need to fight through the noise. Don't just mindlessly mimic what you see. Don't just go along. There has to be a resolve on the inside of us, especially when we're young. And these are young men that Jesus is talking to. We forget. We think of disciples and we see pictures of them and they, they're, they're wise old men. They look like, uh, they look like ZZ Top, right? They, they, <laughs> they, they look like they're well-bearded and they're just, they look older. And you're like, okay, Peter's probably the oldest and he might be 20, 21. These are young, young men. And so Jesus is saying, guys, I need you to contrast and consider going the well-worn paths of the world Versus living what you know to be true.
Romans 12, 2 is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. And the Apostle Paul makes this statement. He makes this declaration. Do not conform to this world. Don't do it. Instead of that, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This conversation that Jesus is having is speaking to that very, very thing. What is it that renews our mind? He calls it out. He says it. He says, Peter, when Peter steps up and says, who do you say that I am? Peter's like, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of God. You've shown up. You're saving us all. This is beautiful. And then Jesus says, and this is my translation, win a winner, chicken dinner. Ding, ding, ding. That is correct. But Jesus goes on to say, that did not come from you. The right answer was not because you're smart. The right answer is not because you're clever. The right answer came to you, not through flesh and blood, not because you were taught it, but because your eyes were opened by God. He says, God, my Father in in heaven, revealed that to you. That's, That's having our minds renewed. And that transforms us. And you see that Peter actually is transformed even on the spot to this new identity. I mean, it happens instantaneously here in the presence of Jesus. He says, you're not Simon Bar-Jonah. That's the old you. This is the new you. You're now Peter, Petra. You're the rock. This is amazing. But this, this happens by way of not listening to the noise, the popular opinion, but reading the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, having it revealed to us, seeing it, having our eyes open. The only way for us to clearly see is for God to give us eyes to see. The only revelation we can have of who Jesus is is by way of not a clever argument, not a six-point message, not some beautiful, uh, thoughtful video that we watch, but through a revelation that God gives us. Our eyes have to be opened. We can only see what God allows us to see. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. And then also, we see in this this, this little moment that, that Jesus has with his disciples, that you begin to see who you really are once you see who he really is. There's so many people out there trying to f- figure out who they are. I'm trying to find myself. Well, you're not lost. You don't go out there to find yourself. I'm backpacking through Europe to find myself. That sounds like a, a great adventure. You're going to have a great time. But your, your, your real self is not... In Tuscany, it's not, it's not like God hid you in the Eiffel Tower for you to go find you, you find you in him. You go to the manufacturer who made you. You find yourself as you see Jesus clearly. So um, part of knowing Jesus is understanding what he's actively doing to understand where he is and where he's at work. And I, 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 don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but just as we kind of close out this section, Jesus says what he's actively doing. He says to his disciples, uh, I'm, building my, my, I'm building my church on this, not Peter, not building it on Peter. People say, well, Peter was, he was the, uh, the beginning of the church because Jesus built his church on that guy. We're going to find out in just a second that that would not be a good foundation. 
He's not building it on Peter. That's not what he says. He says, I'm building it on the revelation of who I am. So the revelation of who I am, what Peter said, what Peter knew to be true, that's the foundation of the church. And then he says actively, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is Jesus doing actively now, right now? He's building his church. And his church is not a building. His church is his people. He's building the body of Christ. He is preparing the bride for the bridegroom. He is actively working in the capital C church. So to be a part of what he is a part of, to be where he is, a lot of people would rather do their own will and do their thing. This is what I think is more. This is, to me, this is a better use of my time. Thank you very much, Jesus. That's silly. You, you want to be where Jesus is. The second section, and this happens directly after what we just read, is in Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. Uh, in this heading, I would put over this trusting Jesus. So we talked about knowing Jesus, knowing who he is. This is trusting Jesus. Uh, and, and I like contrasting uh, what just happened and, and, and Peter acing the test, uh, answering correctly who, uh, who Jesus is. I like to contrast this with uh, this moment, um, which is, is a stark contrast. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and ultimately be killed. But he's going to be raised up on the third day. Peter interrupted him. And he, he uh, took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Peter rebuked Jesus. And he said, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Okay. So we've gone, we've gone from Peter acing the test, uh, sticking the landing. He got the quiz right. Who do people say they am? You're obviously the Messiah to uh, 30 seconds later, get behind me, Satan. Peter was not okay with this plan. Just to, to, to sum it up, Peter didn't like the plan. Jesus said, I'm going to have to go. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to die. Now, Peter missed the part where he said, I'm going to be resurrected. He didn't hear that part. He was stuck on, I'm going to die and suffer. And Peter said, nope, I don't, I'm not okay with this. Um, and now, I, I'm sure a lot of this had to do with his love for Jesus. He did not want to see Jesus suffer and die. I promise you that was in his mind. Uh, but I, I can also, um, I would put money on the fact that he just wasn't okay with this plan for him personally. This sounds scary to me. <laughs> this personally, I'm not comfortable with this. I, I've said this uh, about a million times and, and I'll say it again. I would love to say to you, uh, to anyone that would listen, the, the person I can relate to the most in the Bible, besides Jesus, <laughs> is certainly Paul. I'm a Paul guy, former Pharisee, extremely humble and uh, outspoken about my weakness. And I would love to be able to say to you, I relate to Paul and I'm a Paul guy. Um, 
I am so much Peter, it's not even funny. I can relate to him all the time, and I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. But I'm, I'm, I'm reading this this week, and I'm watching this unfold, and, and I'm like, I cannot tell you how many times in the middle of what, whatever God's doing, I said to him, I don't like this plan. I, I don't like what you're doing. I'm not okay with this. Um, I, would, I would beg you to reconsider. When I'm in the thick of what is obviously God moving and me having to trust him, I don't like it. It's not comfortable for me. And so um, that's exactly where Peter is. He's just not okay with it. He's saying to Jesus, honestly, I don't like this. And truthfully, if we really look at this and and look at through the next several chapters of the, the book of Matthew, Jesus didn't like this plan either, which is a weird thing to consider. So right in the middle of Peter objecting and saying, I don't like this plan, Jesus says, you're Satan. Well, fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does Jesus pray? Is there another way? Can we go plan B? I don't like this plan. If there's any other way, let this cup pass. Jesus himself didn't like the plan. So is Jesus... Calling Peter Satan. There's more to the story here. I would say there's more to the story. How did Peter get the first question right? The Bible says that God told him. His father revealed it to him. Why did he get the second question wrong? Well, this reminds us of this, even this, this, what he's presenting reminds us of a moment several chapters earlier where Jesus is tempted by the devil. And the devil says to Jesus, hey, the path you're on, there's an easier way. You can go around all the pain, the suffering, the death. You can go around, just just kneel to me, no big deal, and you'll get it all. You'll get the reward without the price. So Jesus hears the words that he's only he's heard just previous. And he's like, that's Satan. So it's almost like he's talking through Peter. Satan, get behind me. Peter got it wrong because he was listening to the wrong voice. He got it right when he was listening to the right voice. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus says, I don't like this plan. He got to a place. And this is why we're here. He got to this place, and this is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we celebrate Jesus. This is why we're together, is because Jesus got to this place. He said, nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. He put his very life in God's hands and in God's will. That's... That's why we, that's why he went to the cross. That's why we are saved. But even that statement, not my will, but yours be done. It sort of harkens back to what's being said here 
you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You're not focused on God's will. You're focused on yours. Humanity. Yeah, but I think I, think I know better. Peter had to trust Jesus. He was forced. The disciples had to trust Jesus. They had to trust that he knew what he was doing. We live there. We walk there. We, we abide there. There's no other way. You can't control your life and walk by faith. In fact, those two things are completely at odds. You can't be in control and live by faith. I, 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 could, stop and, I could stop with the first part. You can't be in control. You don't get to. Any illusion of control is, is, is an illusion. It's a facade. You might feel like you are right now in this moment, but give it a beat and the wheels fall off and you're like, what do I do here? The, the last section here is so powerful and, and all this is crescendoing. And we've talked about seeing Jesus, knowing Jesus, trusting Jesus. In this section, he, he addresses following him, following Jesus. And so this is verses 24 through 26. We all know this, these verses here, and uh, they're so powerful, so significant. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, that person must deny themselves, take up their cross to follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever wishes to say to lose, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what would profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. Uh, Galatians two twenty. Speaking of the Apostle Paul, this is, again, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. Jesus did not come to earth, take on human flesh and frailty. He didn't live a sinless life and die a sinner's death for the primary reason of giving to us some sort of divine example or divine role model. He didn't do that to show us how to do this correctly. He's not primarily a divine example. Jesus did all those things to become a divine substitute. Not example, substitute. Jesus could model this in front of us in three-dimensional form, in person. It, it doesn't mean we can do it. Because we can't. The disciples had Jesus in physical form. And they failed miserably time after time after time. That's not it. And so many messages have, we've heard, we've listened to, we've taken notes on, we've rehearsed, we've listened to again. 
have been encouragements just to do right because it's right to do right. Just do what Jesus did. The beginning of following Jesus is acknowledging and admitting, I can't. Deny yourself. What does that mean? Throw in the towel. Some people think denying yourself is just resisting the devil urges that you feel. Those devil urges. I should eat a granola bar and the devil's urging me eat seven donuts. The devil made me do it. Is that in there somewhere? Sure. But I think way bigger than that, in fact, something that helps us with that is acknowledging I'm weak. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. I fall short. I don't have the goods. Denying yourself is not just in the moment making the right decision. Denying yourself is saying, I, I, I can't do this. This is above my pay grade. This is, this is above my head. God's not asking us to march like little Christian soldiers. He's saying, I need you to run a marathon and win it and not trip, not fall. I need you to do it perfectly, to run it like you're going to win the gold medal and beat everybody else, run it better than better everybody else, run it perfectly. And some bravado inside of me says, yeah, I can do that. But the truth is, I, we all know I can't. So Jesus ran the race for me. Jesus secured the prize for me. He won the gold medal, gave it to me as a gift. His grace is so sufficient that I could stumble and fall and never make it off the starting block. And yet, I still get the gold medal. That's why we wrestle with grace. Grace is only for losers. And who wants to stand in that line? Grace, God gives grace to the humble. What that means is God gives grace to people that realize they, they have no other, they have no other course. There's no other way. I can't. To deny yourself is to say, I cannot. So what do you do? Step two, then take up your cross. What does that mean? To take up the finished work in the cross of Jesus Christ. And to say, in fact, I'd say a better translation, be taken up by the cross. You are elevated. You are saved. You are purchased with a price. You are redeemed. You are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. And to live with that reality every single day is to understand how great that sacrifice was. Take it up. Take it up, champion that thing, wave it make, it, make it the centerpiece of your life. Look what the Lord has done for me. He loved me enough to die this gruesome death. And if there's ever a day where I'm like, I don't, I don't feel very loved, I don't feel very valued, take up that cross. Be reminded. He loves you this much. And that's a lot. Deny yourself. Realize you can't. Take up your cross. 
realize he has for you. And the third step might be the toughest. And follow me. That ain't easy. Following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. Following Jesus is is something that is incredibly difficult. Increasingly difficult. He says here, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We only find true life through death. Life through death. All the other world religions, all of them preach moralism. That's nothing new. It's not like Christianity has cornered the market on moralism or moral ascension. Becoming a better you. That is every other world religion. The thing that sets Christianity apart is the statement that you can't do that. There's no ascension. There is no fake it till you make it. There's no be a good person. There's no karma in Christianity. Karma, 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 karma chameleon. Come and go. Christianity is the opposite of karma. Karma says, do good things, put them in the universe, and they'll come back to you and you'll get good things. Thank God that's not true. You get what you deserve. Thank God that he's not about karma. Because Christianity is a proclamation, it's the promise that the worst people get the best because the best person took the worst. It's the opposite of karma. God gives good gifts, not because we're good, but because he is. We're saved not because we deserve it and we've we've earned it, we merit it. We're saved because he deserves it, he merited it, and then he gives it to you because he loves you. Now, to live in such a way to follow him through that is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Follow the leader. Now, if we go back to uh, the first section that we read, but what do people say? What's the popular opinion? What's the crowd say? What, do, what, what does religion say? Well, the big churches, well, the, big, the big religions, the big, the big versions of this, the big celebrity pastors, the big, the big books, the books that sell so many, are saying, do your best and God will do the rest. But what does the Bible say? What does the gospel say? What, you could gain the whole world. You could get everything. You could check every box and yet forfeit your soul. You could have it all and have nothing. That's what he's saying. You could have everything. By all the world's account, you've done it all right. There is a scary, one of the scariest verses in the Bible. Many, many will stand before me and say, but God, we prophesy in your name. We, we cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles. And God's going to say, I don't know you. Get out of here. That is one of the most chilling verses in the Bible. What does that mean? You can have it all and have nothing. 
Jesus is telling this to disciples who are tempted, just like all of us are, to just run the race as if they themselves could win it. And he's telling them, I got you. Believe in me. What price do we place on our soul? What price do we put on our heart? What's enough to lure us away, to to cause us to go our own? You can go your own way. Quote Stevie Nicks in church. What's enough to cause us to turn our backs on the sacrifice of Jesus and make this about ourselves? In the true life that he has secured for us, what's, what's enough? I'll close with this. This is one of the saddest books of the Bible. I thought I'd, I'd close this beautiful Christmas season message with a, the saddest book of the Bible. We're just going to read all of it. Uh, I'm just going to read it to you. I'm kidding. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of a bummer. And uh, if don't read it on a day like today that's rainy and muggy and sad. Don't do it to yourself. Uh, read it during the springtime when birds are chirping and <laughs> you've got you to gotta ice coffee next year. Then read the book of Ecclesiastes because it's, it's not fun. Um, there's a movie called A Walk to Remember, is that what it's called, with Mandy Moore? That's just a slow, steady decline into the total abyss of sadness. It's the worst movie ever made. Switchfoot's the soundtrack, which is beautiful, but the movie's god-awful. Ecclesiastes is the biblical equivalent of that Mandy Moore movie. Um, anyway, authored by the, the one person that we could point to in the Bible who had it all. Had everything. Had it all. Knew everything. Had everything. Wealthiest, richest, smartest. Had it all. So the person that Jesus is saying, he said, you can have everything. You can gain the whole world. He did. And he wrote about it. And so we've got this kind of front row seat to what it, what it would look like for us to have everything we think that we need in order to be happy and feel fulfilled. Whatever our list is, whatever, our, whatever that checklist is, if I, if I could just, if I could just gain, if I could just accomplish, if I could just acquire, if I could just have. Well, this guy did that and he fulfilled everybody's checklist whatever everybody's checklist is he did all of those things and he wrote a book about it and the theme of the book is this this phrase that's repeated over and over and over throughout the whole book vanity vanity it's all vanity he calls it like a puff of smoke nothing Nothingness, nothingness, emptiness, emptiness. It's all for nothing. He writes this book, Ecclesiastes, that is contrasting what life looks like if you got everything, but you don't have the one thing that we're talking about today. Take God out and give me everything else, and you've got nothing. Put God in and take everything else away, you have everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Not Jesus plus your good performance. Not Jesus plus your good ideas. Not Jesus because, plus your good works. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And with Jesus, everything begins to have meaning. 
Jesus illuminates and gives meaning to everything. He fills every corner of our lives. These are the three foundational, fundamental aspects of our lives. Our life in him is, first and foremost, we see him for who he is. Not for what the world says. So many people talk, and you see it online. You see people say it, shout it from the mountaintops. They talk as if God is fallen, and they are perfect. If God was a good God, he'd do what I think. You are a grain of sand on the seashore. You're a blip. What do you know? It's so funny that the irony of people who talk about as if there is no God and they know better. I know, I know better. They, those people, they'll have like broccoli in their teeth and their left shoelace will be untied and they, they parked all crooked in the parking lot and the other car can't park there. It's like just little things they can't stick the landing on. They can't master. Their hair is all jacked up. They, it's like, you, you don't even, you can't even brush your teeth. What, what puts you in a place where like, oh, well, he'll tell you what God should do. Not listen to you, first of all. Knowing Jesus, seeing him for who he truly, really is. No counterfeit messages will do. No counterfeit uh, ideas will do. Give me the gospel. Give me the truth. Paul said, I've determined to know nothing else. Nothing else is going to do but Christ and him crucified. That's all I got. I love what he says. He says, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus. We don't preach do better, try harder. We preach Jesus who's done it all. The second thing, trust him. Which is a daily, it's a daily struggle to say, not my will, but yours. I trust you. This is not what I would do if I was writing the script. This isn't. This isn't the way I'd go. This thing is not going the way I want it to go. I don't feel the way I want to feel. Things aren't looking the way I want them to look. People are not acting the way I want them to act. A lot of despair and depression comes from our frustration with things not going according to plan. So we live in tension and anxiety and depression because this is all bad. It's like, well, no. He works it all out for your good. I had surgery in my jaw when I was 18 years old, maxifacial surgery, where they took both my jaws apart, moved them, and then moved my chin around. If I had woken up in the middle of that surgery, can you imagine? Ah! And I can't even scream. My jaw's on the table next to me. But you wake up after. And you go through the recovery. And then suddenly I look back, I'm 46 now. And I'm like, thank God I did that. God works all out. There's pain. It's, the Bible even talks about it. It's like childbirth, what we're in the middle of here. It's, childbirth is not, I was there with my wife. That was not like the most fun date we'd ever had. Isn't this great? I hate you. 
But then Berkeley's sitting back there, not listening to the message. And... <laughs> She's amazing. What a gift from God. So it, it, he works it all out. We've got to trust the process. And last, to follow Jesus, there's only one way to do that. And that is not to be the most Jesus-like people that we know. But you can try, but it, you know, you know you. You live with you. You know you fall short. We all have falling shorts. To follow Jesus is simply this, to keep your eyes fixed on him. I remember one of the greatest honors of my childhood was to be line leader. Chris, I've chosen you to be line leader. Me? I'd like to thank the academy. I'm line leader. I'm calling my mom from the nurse's office. I'm line leader. Chris, shut up. Go back to class. To be line leader is to have the trust of everyone behind you. There's no gifted enough person, there's no charismatic enough person with enough riz <laughs> uh, that isn't sus. Uh, there's not a person who is accomplished enough, who's smart enough, who's, who, can, who can be. When people, if you've got to bring up a human being, a fleshly human being's name to describe your faith and your belief system, you, you need to reconsider your faith and your belief system. Jesus. That's where my eyes are fixed. Follow him. Let him lead us and guide us. And in this, knowing Jesus, trusting Jesus, following Jesus is everything. It makes everything worth living because it is everything.